Alright, alright, alright. So if you uh, want to turn in your Bibles to John 15, Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 1, that's where we're going to be. But, of course, you know, I like to do a little bit of uh, intentional repetition or purposeful redundancy. Um, you may have seen these out there. There are uh, some handouts out there on the uh, entryway table. Um, basically, I, I typed this up. This is the layout of the journey that we're on, the Emmaus journey. And each message has been about an imminent, intimate relationship between us and Jesus. And I did that so that you guys would be able to keep that in your personal time of study if you wanted to go over that. So as we go over where we've been so far on this Emmaus Road, we'll just kind of walk through this handout. So when we started out, we started out with the actual Emmaus Road, Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 13 through 35. And what we were looking at, we were looking at their walk with Jesus, their conversation with Jesus. And we looked at that specifically about Jesus being the fulfillment of the entirety of the Bible. And so the relationship that Jesus took with them was that of a teacher, and they took the relationship of students. So he was the teacher, they were the students, he was the shepherd, they were the sheep, he was leading them to an intended destination. However, when we asked the question, was the Emmaus Road a success or a failure, we realized that the reason it was a failure is because they did not really surrender to him the authority of the shepherd. They were fine learning about him, but they wanted to stop where they wanted to stop. And if we really want Jesus to be our shepherd, then we have to do like Psalm 23 says, and we have to let him lead us, let him make us lie down, let him restore us. He has to be the Lord because the revelation that we received was that where Jesus is not recognized as Lord, the manifestation or the glory of his presence won't abide. And we want his presence to abide here, so we must acknowledge him as Lord here and so on that the main emphasis and this is where I bolded that is our curriculum our study guide our course is of Christ it's about Christ it's in Christ it's, through Christ. it's of Christ it's derived from Christ he is the central focus and so we walked through every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and showed how each one gave a revelation of Jesus and then the second week we began by recapping and answering the question, was it a success, a failure? It was both. It was neither. It was a success and it was a failure. But then we proceeded and we looked at the revelation that Peter had. When Jesus tells him, he says, who do men say that I am? And he said, well, some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You might be Elijah. And he said, wait, okay, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, in his impetuous impulsiveness, speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds and He says, Flesh and blood didn't reveal you this, but my Father which is in heaven has revealed this to you. And that lets us know that we can't truly perceive, and if you've been here on Wednesday nights, I've been hammering this in, the natural man cannot perceive the spiritual truths because they're foolishness to him. It has to be a revelation given to us by God. We have to receive the truth of the Word, the reality of the Word from the Spirit of God. That's why it's imperative that every time we go to the Word of God, we seek God in prayer that He would reveal to us the reality behind the surface level of the text. So, the truth, upon this rock, and we went through and said, this is not the Catholic Peter that was becoming the vicar of Christ, that had the keys of death, hell. That's not what Jesus was saying. 
What Jesus was saying was upon this rock, the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that revelation is the rock, the foundation upon which the church is built. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, round about verse 10, he says, Other foundation can no man lay but that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about what you can build on that foundation, but you can't lay a different foundation. How you build the church is something different, but you can't lay a different foundation. You have to keep the foundation Jesus. And the main emphasis was that our construction is built upon Christ. He is the rock. We looked at the parable of the house built on sand versus the house built on the rock, and we understood that sand is a fragmented rock. It's pieces of doctrine without the whole truth of Jesus Christ. And when the storm comes, when persecution comes, that house collapses, it fails, it falters, and the great is the fall of it. But, bless God, that if we build our house, if we build our church upon the true revelation, the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ, then even when the persecution comes, even when the storm comes, even when the enemy comes, the house stands strong because it's built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And of course, our relationship, like we just said a moment ago, is that He is the foundation, we are the building, He is the chief cornerstone, and we are the temple. Part three, we took, and what I thought was a water break, to preach a word that was weighing heavy on my heart but actually fit right into the the series or the journey here was we looked at Philippians 3 where Paul says whatsoever was gained to me that's what I counted as loss and we went over the fact that we're so ready and so eager to surrender everything that we think is bad like we're willing to give up sickness and poverty and sin we're willing to give up our trials we're willing to give up our struggles but we do not always so willingly surrender to God what we call good. We're not as willing to give to God those things that we count as gain. For example, I use the example of me being the pastor. And I said, I've worked my whole life to get to this point. I am so happy that God has brought me here. This is extremely valuable to me to be y'all's pastor. I love it with everything that's in me. But if God came to me and asked me to give it up, if I was unwilling to give up the ministry for God, then what I'm actually worshiping is the work of God and not the person of God. And that becomes a problem. So we have to get to this place of no matter what it is, if it's a relationship, if it's a career, if it's money, if it's any possession that we cannot give up, then that possession actually possesses us. So we have to get to the place to where we're willing to say anything and everything that I think is good and valuable in my life. If God Almighty asked me to give it up, I would be willing to give it up without a second thought because God is who I'm after. I want God alone, not joy, not blessing. I want God. And if I get the joy and blessing, then thank God because those are promises of His. But I'm after the person of God, not the product of God. Amen? And so we looked at the relationship there that He is the treasure that we have in earthen vessels. He is the treasure, we're the vessel. You could say that He is the pearl of great price in the field. He's the treasure that the man sold everything that the man found in the field, and then he sold everything that he had to buy the field so that he could get the treasure. We could say that He's that. That's the relationship. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure, and we are the vessel, or even the one that seeks after the treasure, that should be willing to give up everything for the treasure. And the main emphasis is that our lives should be consumed by Christ. If you've noticed every single one of these, it starts with our, and then the next word is a C. 
so that it's easy to remember. Our curriculum is of Christ. Our construction is built upon Christ. Our lives should be consumed by Christ. It's so that we can remember these. And then last week, we looked at the great mystery, the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And we took that and we took some practical applications about marriage from that. But the point of that entire message was that the church found its birth in Christ just as Eve was taken from the side of man, we went through several scriptures and we showed that the church was taken from the side of Christ and that Christ values the church, that He was willing to give His life for it, that the church is sanctified in Christ. And the desire that He has for the church is that she should be glorious without spot or blemish or any such thing, but that she would be holy and without blemish before God. And that's Christ's desire for the church and so we can look at that and say that the relationship in that instance is He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And the main emphasis is that our covenant is with Christ. And really and truthfully, you have to understand what that means. If we look in the natural perspective, when a man says his vows to his wife and the wife says her vows back, it is a long, and some of you have experienced this, it is a long and arduous, tedious and painful process to annul those vows. It is an extremely painful process because essentially when a man and a woman come together, they, you know, they say, till death do us part, for richer or poorer, better or worse, all of those things, it's because they've come together and established a covenant in Christ, right? If that, that's if you're doing it the spiritual way. But what I'm saying is it's a hard process to break that because there's certain responsibilities that the man says to the wife and certain responsibilities that the woman swears to the man, Right? What we can take from that spiritually is that when we come into covenant with Christ, there's certain things that He has promised to us that we have available because of that covenant. There's certain things that he, we have available because we are in covenant with Christ. For example, I said joy blessing. Joy is a promise that we have because of our covenant with Christ. There are some gifts there's some favor that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that He'll be with us always until the end of the age, that He'll be our provider, that He'll be our banner, that He'll be our protector, He'll be our shield and our defense and our tower and our refuge. There are promises that He's given to us because we're in covenant with Him. Then also, and you'll see this, and I never do this, you can ask faith, but I also put part five and part six. I also put what I'm going to be preaching this week, bearing fruit, the vine and the branches, and then what I'm going to be preaching next week as long as some divine intervention doesn't occur, fellowship, the head and the body. So you guys will have that so you can study those scriptures there on your spare time. And you can also get a head start and be prepared for this next week and make sure that I preach it correctly. So John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the, world that I, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That last verse, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I don't know about you guys, but joy is something that I am extremely interested in. I do not like being depressed. I do not like being down. I do not like being beat up and wished every way by the circumstances of life. See, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is something that we have that's contingent or dependent upon the circumstances in our life. I have a bad day at work. I'm unhappy. My wife and I have a disagreement, and she's right and I'm wrong. I'm unhappy. Somebody hands me a $5 bill so that I can buy an ice cream. I'm happy. A couple hours later when my stomach's hurting, I'm unhappy. You see what I'm saying? Happiness is contingent upon the circumstances in our life. Joy is not. Joy is contingent upon our unchangeable God. So if we have joy, then we might have what seems comparable to happiness consistently regardless of the circumstances. We've all heard that song, Peace in the Middle of the Storm. What it's saying, or what the underlying message of that song is, is regardless of what's going on in my life, regardless of what you say to me, regardless of what you do to me, regardless if I lose my job, regardless if I end up flat broke, lose everything that I have, I still have joy. That's what Paul had. That's why he was able to be in a Roman prison, beaten and bruised to the point of deformity, yet he could still write rejoice. Again, I say rejoice because he had joy, not happiness. Does that make sense? He had joy which was contingent only upon the fact that he had an unchangeable relationship with an unchangeable Christ, not happiness which was dependent upon his circumstances. So you can be unhappy but when something happens, but if you have true joy in Christ, then that unhappiness is momentary because your joy reigns back in and you're like, well, I don't care that that happened because I still have my Jesus. See what I'm saying? It's like, I lost my job. That sucks. That's a terrible day. I'm mad five seconds later, but I have a God who said he's my Jehovah Jireh. He's my provider. So therefore my joy trumps my unhappiness. And that's what we can get. That's why I'm so interested in getting that joy. So he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy, the joy of Christ, might be in you and that might make your joy full. Or actually, if you look in the Greek, I'm pretty sure that that has the extent or implication of overflowing. David says in Psalm 23, since we referenced that a moment ago, my cup overflows. So if the joy of Christ is in us, then it should push our cup to the point of overflowing with joy, right? So that's what I want. So now let's figure out how to get that. And he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. So what we're going to look at is the passage that leads down to that verse because that's what he's saying. I said these things so that you could have my joy in you. So what things? This is where we get into the relationship of the vine and the branches. So how do we get the joy of Christ in us and how does that joy push our joy to the point of overflowing? It's the same thing that causes God to be glorified in us. If you look down at verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So we see that God is glorified by our bearing much fruit and proving to be the disciples of Christ. That's also the same thing that causes Christ's joy to be in us. 
is that we bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples. So now how do we bear fruit? And if you're taking notes, I want you to write A, B, C, D, E. We're going to learn our alphabet like I've been teaching Asher. <laughs> A, B, C, D, E. Instead of writing one through five, we're going to go with our letters. So the first principle is abide. And we're going to define that. He says, abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing. That's verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So what does abide mean? Because that's not a word that we typically use in our modern conversation. Abide means to stay, to live, to remain, to dwell, to tarry. It means to be in Christ and to tarry there, to live in Christ, to make your abode in Christ. It's like you have a home. And regardless of where you go, you return home. Does that make sense? Like I live in Long Beach. And I might go to the beach. I might go to PJ's Coffee. I come to church. I go to Walmart. But I always return home. I always return to that place of abiding, my place of my abode or the place where I abide. In Christ, we might go to work, but we still abide in Christ. That's where our life is held. That's where all of our treasures are at. That's our place of rest. That's our place of peace. We might go somewhere else, and it's not that we're leaving Christ. It's just a picture that you understand what abiding is. It's like no matter what our mind goes to, if I'm focused on my job, if I'm focused on taking care of my children, my focused on this, it always comes back to that central point of Christ. I'm focused on my kids. Well, why am I being a good father? It's because Christ is a good father. It's because we worship Christ through our work. Why am I working hard at my job? So that I can be a good provider, so that I can worship God through my work. Our central focus, our root, is in Christ. So everything that we do, everywhere that we go, everything that we say has its return or its base or its root in Christ. So no matter what we're doing, whether it's working at the church, whether it's working at our secular job, whether it's working... Hang on, I said working at our secular job. I want to I show this... I'm trying to think of the word. This cultural fallacy that we have. We have drawn this line and we say this is what's secular or natural and this is what's sacred. This is what's godly. And so we'll say, I'm a Christian and I work at a secular job. In Christ, there is no sacred and secular. There is only sacred. So even if we have a secular job, we surrender that to the Lord and say, I'm working this secular job for a sacred purpose so that I can show everyone that I come in contact with a revelation of who Jesus is by my actions. I am accomplishing a sacred work even in doing what I would call or what society would call a secular thing. Does that make sense? There is no sacred and secular because in Christ, everything that we do should have a sacredness about it. Everything should be consecrated or holy or sanctified or set apart for God. No matter what it is, no matter what we're doing, everything should be for God, by God, through God, because of God, for God, towards God, and on and on and on. So the first letter, A, is abide. And you can put abide means to stay, live, dwell, remain. The B is for Bible. And I'm reducing this down so that we know exactly what we're saying. He says, abide in my word. That's verse 7. If you abide in me 
and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here's the truth. God gives us the desires of our hearts. But what we don't understand is it's not God gives us the object of our desires only, but God actually gives us the motivation for our desires. So if Christ's Word abides in us, then our desires will start to change from worldly desires or sinful desires and they'll start to change to very godly, very Christ-like desires. And then because His Word abides in us and has changed our desires to good things, to godly things, then He gives us the object of our desires also. So not only does He give us the object of our desires, but first He gives us the new motivation for our desires so that our desires reflect His glory. And then He gives us the object of our desires because that further brings glory to Him that He's giving us godly things. So B is for Bible, and you can put out from it, abide in His Word. This Word. His written Word. C. C is for communion. And not just the sacrament of communion where we take the bread and the wine, but communion is literally to abide in His love, to live in His love, to remain in His love. And that's going to be verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. We keep that constant relationship with Christ. So, and we keep in the forefront of our mind that God loves us, that He's for us. And if Christ and God is for us, then who can be against us? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is also seated at the right hand of God, continually making intercession for us. It says, all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Christ is for us. He's a good God. His love is for us. So C is communion. You can put out from that relationship, love, prayer. It's to continue Continue to stay in that vein of the love of God. See, I love my wife, but if I never did anything for her, if I never talked to her, then we would not have communion or communication, and so our relationship would begin to deteriorate. But if I continually have conversation with her, tell her how I'm feeling, listen to how she's feeling, talk about things that we like, things that we dislike, thoughts that we have on a subject, talk about the Word of God, talk about all of these different things, then our relationship continually becomes strengthened as we discover more and more about who each other is. And God says this, He says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. We have been made kings and priests in Christ, so God conceals aspects of Himself so that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can search them out so that you can come to a greater understanding of who He is. Therefore, your relationship can continually be strengthened. And in the process, you'll come to a greater understanding of who you are and things in yourself that you need to change because we want to be conformed to the image of His Son. So we have communion, communication. And if you're having trouble maintaining a prayer life, then on Wednesday nights I gave this encouragement. When we pray... Don't just try to get down on your hands and knees with your eyes closed and pray that way. That's a good way to pray. But the way that I encourage you to pray, if you're going to get on your knees because you feel more prostrate, because you feel more humble, and you feel that that's more reverential to God, fine. But take your Bible and open it in front of you. And pray with your eyes open. Read a passage. And then pray yourself through that passage. Because this is the perfect manuscript for prayer. We read the Psalms and we can pray. And it says, the Lord blesses you and keeps you. 
Thank You, God, that You bless me. Thank You that You keep me. Regardless of where I go, thank You that it's You that brings me back to the fold because You are a good God. You're a good Heavenly Father. The Lord is my shepherd. Thank You, God, that You're my personal shepherd. Does that make sense? Pray with Your Word open, with Your Bible open, and that will continually to encourage you to increase your prayer life. Because if you're reading so that you have a manuscript for prayer, then not only are you accomplishing one thing, as in being in His Word, but you're also accomplishing the act of praying to God also, and your communion is strengthened. D. D is going to be disciple. And it's the same verse. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. This is obedience to Christ. So you can put obedience out from there. It's just obeying the Word of God. When you read something and you discover that God wants you to be holy because He's holy, then you strive to obey that. God wants you to love your enemies. You strive to obey that. He wants you to pray for those that are sick and hurting. Then you strive to obey that. He wants you to put off these sinful things. Then you strive to obey that. We obey. And so E. E is expect fruit. Simple. You ain't even got to do anything on this one. You do all the others, the first four, and then E is just expectancy. Expect fruit. And here's what I mean by that. An apple tree does not stand out in the field and struggle. You don't see an apple tree going, uh, uh, trying to bear an apple. An apple tree bears an apple because the circumstances are correct for the apple tree to bear those apples. It's mature enough. It's in the right soil. So if we're rooted in Christ, it's watered. If we're watered by the Spirit and it receives the light, if we receive the light from the Word, if we have all the right circumstances going on, then the fruit would be born naturally. It would not be a striving to bear a certain kind of fruit. The fruit would be automatic because the circumstances in our life are right. The parameters are right. What you may not know, though, is no matter what you do, what choices you make, whether they're godly or ungodly, you're bearing fruit regardless of what choices you make. The question is, what kind of fruit is it? And this is where we're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. Let me give you a second to turn there. I also take a second to turn there. And we're going to be in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep, but they're wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I didn't preach this. Um, it was in the John 15 passage where right there, verse 19, it says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Understand that the type of fruit that you bear will have a direct implication on your eternity, whether you spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Because fruit is not something that you consciously do. It's an 
indicator of where you're at spiritually. So if you're bearing bad fruit only, then you're a diseased tree and you're in danger of hellfire where they throw you in and the smoke and the fire of your torment goes up forever and ever without ceasing. Not a place you want to go. But the point is, is that good trees bear good fruit. Diseased trees bear bad fruit. And then he starts this off by saying, beware of false prophets because they look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And there's many of us who look like Christians, who think that we act like Christians, think that we talk like Christians, but the fruit of our life show that we're anything but ravenous, or but Christians. We're actually, in fact, ravenous wolves. Ravenous just means starving, hungry, that we're starving for something that we don't have. But if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, then we'll be filled. We'll be full. Because if we hunger and thirst after Christ, the problem with the ravenous wolves is they're hungering and thirsting after something that isn't Christ. And many people are using the church to get something that isn't Christ that they want. They're after the provision. And they take that to an unbiblical point of view that if I believe God, then I can get rich. And there's preachers out there, you can find preachers for that, that will say if you're spiritually healthy, then you'll be rich. If you're spiritually rich, you'll be financially rich. They say, they'll, they'll preach those things. So you're starving for the money, not starving for the provider. And we have to get our perspective straight. We have to starve and hunger for righteousness, Christ our righteousness, and we'll be filled by that. But if we're hungry or starving for the healing, or we're hungry or we're starving for the money, or we're hungry or we're starving for the, the place, or we're hungry and starving for the limelight, then we're ravenous wolves and we're not being filled. We've got a void in our life because we're not actually hungry, hungering and starving for the Word of God who is Christ Jesus. Sorry, I got a little tongue-tied there. So, we're going to go to Galatians 5 because it says good fruit, bad fruit, but it's not really specific on what the good fruit and the bad fruit is there. And this is why we need to cross-reference and look at the entirety of our Bible together, not just one section. Galatians 5, verse 19. I know I'm having you guys turn a little bit. It's all right. I'm going to make sure that by the time you cease to know me, you're going to love to read. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned those before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's where he just went through and he said, these are the works of the flesh. This is the bad fruit. This is the fruit that a diseased tree bears. If you don't know those words, get a dictionary out and you can find the definitions of those words and make sure that those are not the evidence of your life. If someone doesn't know that you're a Christian and they're only seeing the fruit that you bear, are those the fruit that they're seeing? This is not a beat em up message. This is a message saying we need to do a self-reflection, self-inspection, and look at the fruit of our life. What are people actually seeing in our life? Are they seeing this list of the works and the fruit of the flesh? Because then it caps that off by saying the people that bear these, that these are the fruit that they bear, they're diseased trees and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But it continues on. And it says, But the fruit 
of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So it says these are the fruits of the Spirit. This is the good fruit. This is the fruit that a healthy tree that's rooted in Christ, watered by the Spirit, receiving the light of the Word. This is the fruit that that tree bears. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And then it goes on to say, and the people that belong to Christ Jesus, because this is the type of trees talking about, is the ones that are in Christ, that have covenant with Christ. This is the one, going back to that layout, the ones that their course is of Christ that their construction is of Christ, that they're consumed by Christ, that their covenant is with Christ. This is the fruit that they're bearing. And that fruit is born because they've crucified the flesh and its lust on the cross. Because Christ died for us, but the even deeper truth is Christ died as us. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. And if you understand what substitution means, it means in place of. Christ died in our place. Christ did not sin. He was not in danger of the wrath or judgment of God. We were. So He went to Gethsemane. He prayed. Great exchange. Spirit, soul, and body made that exchange and then went on the cross as the sin, as the curse, and gave His life, died as us. Yes, it was for us, but it was also as us. It was our place. We were supposed to hang on a tree. We were supposed to die. We were supposed to experience the wrath of God. But He made a way that He would take it, not us. And so the reason that we have the ability to bear good fruit is because the root cause of the bad fruit was nailed to the cross. So if we can abide in that covenant with Christ, going back to that word abide, abide in His love, abide in His Word, keep or obey His commandments, then we should expect fruit. And expecting fruit proves that we're good trees, ergo proves that we're disciples, so then it not only brings glory to God, but then going back to John 15, 11, it causes His joy to be in us because that's also a fruit of the Spirit and that causes our joy to be overflowing. That was what we said we wanted at the beginning, right? We wanted the joy of Christ in our lives overflowing so that no matter the circumstance or the situation, we would have joy. Even if we were unhappy for a moment, that joy would override that unhappiness. Even if we were on the verge of depression, that joy would come in and take that away because we would remember that we are in Christ. And that's all possible because of the substitutionary sacrifice where He literally took the root. That's one of the terms the Old Testament gives to Him. He took the root and He nailed it to the tree. He triumphed over them in it, made a public show of the enemy through the crucifixion, and therefore gave us the ability to have the root of righteousness in us which would cause us to bear good fruit. And all that's possible because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking at is the fact that we can be a tree that's healthy and bears good fruit, which proves that we're disciples, glorifies God, and causes things like the joy of Christ to be in us and overflow through us. Not just the joy, but love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness and all of the fruits of the Spirit. And it shouldn't be a struggle. These things should start to become automatic the more that we abide in Christ and have communion with Him.
Now, I want to cause this little application here, and then we'll wrap up. Genesis, and you don't have to turn there. Genesis chapter 1, it goes through the, the days of creation. On the first day, God created light and separated the light from the darkness, and the light He called day, and the darkness He called night, and He said that it was good. And then on the second day, there was the creation of the firmament, and He separated the waters, and He called the water sea, and the dry land He called land. But on the third day, He created trees and bushes, seed bearing after its own kind. But there's a principle that He says. He said He caused the fruit trees to bear fruit with the seed in itself, each after its own kind. And there's an application that we can take from that. If we're trying to be trees that bear good fruit, such as kindness and joy and peace and patience, then the seed of that would be in that and it would produce after its own kind. So if I bear the fruit of kindness to another, then what I'm actually doing is planting the seed of kindness in them. So if I'm bearing the fruit of love to everyone that I come in contact with, then I'm planting the seed of love into their lives. And the thing that we know about seed is if we can get the conditions right for the seed, then that seed will grow and produce more fruit. So the way that we evangelize and do so effectively is if we can bear the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God, to others, then we'll bear the seed of God in their lives. Does that make sense? So if I can bear the fruit of kindness, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, all of that, if I can bear that in my life and bear it to others, then I'm planting the seed of that in their lives. And then if we can get the conditions around them, such as giving them the Word of God, introducing them to the Spirit of God, and we can get that right, then maybe, just maybe, we can see God provide the increase in their life. It says some planted, some watered. God provides the increase. Maybe we can see God cause increase in their life and maybe we can see that person become into covenant with Christ. And then they can do it. And then they can introduce it to somebody else. That's how we're going to see multiplication and that's how we see true church growth by bearing fruit. And how do we do that? By abiding in Christ. So it's a process. We abide in Christ and allow these things to be evident in our life. Then we bear fruit glorifying God and causing these blessings of God to be in our life and then that allow, overflows into other people's lives and starts the whole process all over all again because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You. I thank You for the opportunity of coming under Your Word. Lord, to study Your Word and realize that there's so many rich applications in Your Word. Lord, I just pray for myself and for the individuals here that we could get the circumstances in our life right so that we could bear the fruit of the Spirit effectively, effortlessly. And then that fruit could be our witness or a part of our witness to other people so that we could see multiplication. Lord Jesus, and that would bring You glory and that would bring us blessing and that would spread the love of Christ abroad. So Lord Jesus, I'm just asking there, if there is any bad fruit in our lives, Lord, that we would figure out what that is and Lord, just as John 15 says, you prune the trees that bear fruit. So pruning means that there's those branches that are dead, those the branches that are dead and their fruit is rotted. Lord, that you just cut those branches away. So Lord Jesus, if we have any areas in our life that are bearing fruit that's bad, Lord, just prune us. Show us what it is. Cut it away so that our fruit might be entirely good. 
and therefore we might be a good and faithful witness to a good and faithful God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.